0: Our Bible reading this morning is in two sections. Um, You'll find it in Luke chapter 11, and that's on page 870 in your pew Bibles. We're going to start reading from verse 37, read from 37 to 44, and then we'll move on a little bit to uh, still in chapter 11, verse 53, carrying on through into chapter 12, verse 12. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us arms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. And then moving on to verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who defends me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in the very hour what you ought to say.
1: Thank you for a reading Ruth and please keep that passage open in front of you on page eight seventy-eight seventy-one. Uh, the Bible defines a church not by the architecture we meet in but by the people we are gathered around God's word. And so let me pray as we come to listen to our Heavenly Father. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it has the power to reach people, to build people up, to train and send people out with the good news of Jesus. And we pray that word work would continue this morning with all the other things on our minds, all the potential distractions. Please help us to sit at your feet and listen. And we pray that your spirit would be powerfully at work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, a huge welcome too. If you are new amongst us, if you've come in to see what all the fuss is about, you're very welcome. Just to say there's an outline on the back of the service sheet tucked in your Bible if you want to know um, where we're headed. You'll see from that, the title I've given this talk, and actually it's going to be the same title next week as well, the title I've given is, Are We Anxious About the Right Things? Are we anxious about the right things? That's the topic this week and next week. If you look at Luke 12, um, all the way through, you see that this passage is about fear and worry and anxiety. Just look through me, verse four, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who. Verse five, instead, I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who. Then verse seven, fear not, you're of more value than sparrows. Verse 11, when they bring you before the synagogues, rulers, authorities, do not be anxious about how you defend yourself. There's a lot of fear and anxiety in this week's passage. And next week, it's going to carry on. Verse 22, just have a look. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, nor about your body, what you put on. Verse 25, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Verse 29, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Verse 32, right at the end. Fear not, little flock. It's a chapter all about worry, fear, anxiety. Jesus, though, is not trying to remove all fear and worry, but redirect it. It's quite challenged me that. He's actually wanting us to worry more about God's eternal kingdom and less about things here and now. What kind of fears is he addressing in the chapter? Well, for once, we're not talking about COVID anxiety. The fears we've got um, are two, I think, even more basic human fears than that. This week, social fear, fear of people. Next week, material fears, the anxiety of making ends meet. Both times, Jesus is going to challenge us. Are we anxious about the right things. Now just notice from verse 1, Jesus is giving this teaching to his disciples. It's a kind of time out. It's like a huddle where he gets his team around him to teach them on anxiety. Why is he doing that? Well, he loves them. But why now in Luke? Why is now the moment to have a team huddle to talk about fear and anxiety? Well, if you were here last week up the road, you'll know why. You'll know exactly why. Because the opposition is growing at this point in Luke. Luke chapter 11, things have been heating up. Now Jesus has always warned, right from the start of his big journey to Jerusalem in chapter 9, he warned that people would reject him. They wouldn't like what he has to offer and has to say. But now the disciples are seeing that firsthand. His followers have started to witness the various flavors of rejection to Jesus and opposition to Jesus, whether it's skeptics, not convinced by the miracles, the saints thinking they're too clean for Jesus, the scholars who know so much but won't humble themselves to follow it. Well, the arguments aren't particularly coherent. We've seen that. But the hostility is real. Chapter 11, as we read in verse 53, it ends with the Pharisees and the lawyers they're lying in wait now trying to trap Jesus. And so you can understand why his followers might need a pep talk those Pharisees and lawyers, they were significant figures in the society of the day. To get into their bad books would cause significant discomforts, social discomfort, shame, ostracism, uh, economic discomfort as your, your house or your small business becomes a bit of a no-go zone to everyone else, knowing that if you lose your job for this, you might struggle to get another one. Real worries back then. And of course, real worries today, aren't they? A couple of weeks ago, we've been been seeing these videos updating us on some of our global partners. And we saw one family who are serving Jesus in a context where there's significant political opposition, where actually livelihoods and personal freedom is actually at risk for publicly associating with a Christian church or with a school or speaking of Jesus. And it's not just them, it's true of a number of our partners around the world. But of course, it's not just the other side of the world where it can be scary to be a Christian. Sometimes it's true here in Scotland. Sometimes as Christians, we we can find it hard even to tell our neighbours or friends or colleagues that we are actually a Christian, let alone explain what it means, what we actually believe. Even when we move down the road in Morningside, I wonder, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to to be close to to a, a new part of the community, to invite others to get to hear how good Jesus is, I wonder if any of us, though, in the back of our mind had the worry, "Oh, I wonder if anyone's going to be upset. Are any feathers going to get ruffled if someone comes in and hears what Jesus says from the Bible? Being public as a Christian can be scary. As a church, it can be scary. In fact, I was chatting with another small group leader in church this week. Uh, we were both sharing how we tried to use the night of Halloween as an um, opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with our neighbours. In our household, we did a kind of light party. And This is new to us. We we were challenged about two years ago when we studied through 1 Corinthians 9 that we should try and engage in a distinctive way with with that um, evening to try and share the light of Jesus. Um, So what we did is we carved a message about Jesus into our pumpkins. Um, I think we've got a picture. It may or may not appear. Yes, there it is. Oh, it's over my head. Can you see that? Um, It says, Jesus is the light of the world. And we also gave out leaflets that said something about Jesus, along with sweets. Um, Now, I realize not every Christian would choose to use Halloween that way. That's absolutely fine. Um, But the point of it was, you can take the picture down. The point of it was, I was speaking to this other lady who'd also given out some leaflets, some tracts on Halloween night to folk in her street. And I said, how did you find doing that? And this is a mature, keen Christian, loves Jesus. And she said, I was scared the whole time. And I said, me too. (laughs) To be totally honest with you, that's exactly how it felt. Uh, Jesse and I wondered, well, especially me, I think I was the coward. We wondered, what are our neighbours going to make of our slightly weird pumpkins? Talking about Jesus and the light of the world. Even more, what are they going to make of the unusual leaflets in with the sweets? More than once that weekend, we had to pray for courage just to go through with it. Because it's scary sometimes being a public Christian. And so, Luke 12, in the face of that opposition, and actually, verse 1, in the face of crowds of people coming to hear, people who are curious, well, we need a pep talk from Jesus. We need to get our fear in the right place, because it is so easy to be silenced by fear, isn't it? Just self-censorship, let alone state censorship. Just fearful self-censorship, because the more we're out there, the more we might face opposition. Now, Jesus warns about this fear of people in kind of three different temptations this morning, which are our three points. You can see them. As this crowd grows, as this opposition grows, or three temptations. Don't be people pleasers. Don't be people fearers. And don't be anxious about publicly speaking of Jesus. In some ways, there are three ways of saying the same thing. But let's pick up temptation one from verses one to three. Don't be people pleasers. I'm getting that point from verse two. And it is going to take a bit of unpacking. This is the hardest bit of the passage, um, so let me read it and stay with me. When so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, leaven is a word for yeast. um, And I don't know if you got the home baking bug during um, lockdown, but if you're not sure, um, yeast is something very small that can spread through the whole of a batch of dough unseen. Um, And it really is small. So here is, this is the amount, that little bit there, is the amount of yeast you need for a whole loaf. Tiny really, but it can spread unseen through um, the whole lump of dough. And Jesus is warning that hypocrisy is like that. He says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Especially that kind of religious hypocrisy that Pharisees are examples of. That's a real danger, even for Jesus' disciples. What is hypocrisy? Well, here's what my best Greek definition, uh, dictionary says in its definition. To create a public impression that is at odds with one's real purposes or motivations. Let me say that again to create a public impression that is at odds with one's real purposes or motivations. And then some other words you could use, play acting, pretense, outward show, dissembling. Of course, that's what we've seen with the Pharisees. That's why we read that bit from chapter 11. They're pretending to invite Jesus to a friendly dinner, but really they're trying to trap him. They pretend to really care about obeying God. They're tithing the spice rack, but in their hearts they don't love him. Uh, They love, verse 43 of chapter 11, they love being well thought of by people, they get the prime seats, but they neglect real justice. That is, they're putting on an outward show, looking spiritually clean, pleasing people, but, but there's a mismatch, because inside things have gone rotten. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, beware, that could actually be a danger for you. That could actually spread like yeast, that kind of two-faced life, the kind of double life, the hypocrisy where there's an outward show which is different from what's inside. Now, what might that mean specifically? I think we're used to thinking about hypocrisy as Christians as, um, I must not kind of put on a good front on Sundays and then not live for Jesus during the week. And it may be, actually, if if you've been drifting, if your life has started to to drift away from obedience to Jesus, it may be that's a warning this morning. If you're still going through the motions at church, but but things have drifted privately, this would be a good morning to, to wake up, say sorry, and start serving the Lord throughout life, fighting sin. But actually, I think the kind of hypocrisy Jesus is challenging in this chapter is a bit different. I think this is the risk of loving Jesus in our hearts, following Jesus in private, but not being willing for that to be public at all. Let me just read the definition of hypocrisy again. To create a public impression that's at odds with one's real purposes or motivations. I think that could be a danger for us. I know it's a danger for me. In my heart, in my home, in my family, with other believers on the weekend, when I'm surrounded by Christians, I'm all for it. But there's just a risk when I'm surrounded by the crowds who don't particularly like Jesus. Well, there's a risk of not speaking like a Christian, not acting like a Christian, tempted to go silent, to speak one way in uh, in private and a very different way in public. Jesus says, it's not an option. Beware, watch out for that that double life, becoming a different person in public and private. So easy for it to spread like yeast. Then he gives motivation, verses two and three. Verse two, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light and whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, of course, that that principle covers the Pharisees. I mean, they're plotting in private rooms and it's all going to be revealed in the end. Jesus already knows what they're doing. It's also true for us as Christians. God sees and hears all of what we say, whether we're here or with other Christians or whether we're in the office or the school gate or at home. In the end, everything's going to be public. It's actually I've said this before, but it's actually, I think, one of the few spiritually healthy lessons that Zoom has taught me. Um, I'm now surrounded by microphones and cameras at home, in my pocket, on my phone, <laughs> and one of my repeated worries is, what if I left the call on? Like, what if it's, it's, I've pocket-dialed the whole church, kind of broadcasting on Zoom, everything I'm saying, and you hear me and it's how I talk to the other parents at school, and you hear me um, in how I catch up with my uni friends? It's been a sobering thought... Because I realised, I realised the challenge: would I sound like the same person? And of course, it's a helpful thought because God does see and hear it all. In the end, Judgment Day, there are going to be no private corners of life of anyone's life. Everything's exposed. And so, one of my biggest prayers, as a minister, as a dad, as a Christian, is that I'd have integrity, integrity to be the same person. The same values, the same speech, that's what he's focused on here, the same speech, wherever I am, whoever I'm with, not the kind of two-faced, double-tongued that I'm so tempted to. Jesus had that integrity of speech. It's great to pray that we would too. But of course, the hardest time to be like that is in the face of opposition, Scary opposition, especially violent opposition, which is why he moves on to our second point, verse 4, the temptation to fear people. Don't be people fearers. Of course, if we do start speaking more and more authentically in public, more in line with how we are as followers of Jesus in private, well, just like him, we will sometimes encounter pushback. Sometimes people don't like what Jesus says. And so Jesus here helps us to put our fear in the right place. So verses 47, don't be people fearers. Let me read. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now Jesus here goes for the worst case scenario, doesn't he? People who want to kill you and succeed And of course, most of the opposition we're facing in this country is far, far less severe than that. Actually, I wonder if, for those of us who are prone to anxiety like me and catastrophizing, I wonder if it's actually quite helpful to consider the absolute worst-case scenario here. Jesus' point is, even in the most scary of human opposition, the kind who actually want to kill you and actually have the power to, and succeed, even then there's something that's bigger to worry about. Of course, this isn't an empty threat, is it? Not even today. It was while I was actually at theological college studying with a number of other pastors when news came in that there was a video of ISIS lining up a line of pastors and saying, deny Jesus or we'll kill you right here. Even against that threat, Jesus says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he's killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, at first sight or hearing, that sounds like pretty tough love, doesn't it, from Jesus? Jesus, we're scared. Please help us. There are strong opponents, and they got the force to do us real harm. And Jesus replies, basically saying, you think that's scary? Well, let me tell you something even more scary. God is the eternal judge. He has power not just in this life, but for all eternity. At first sight, that doesn't seem like a great comfort. And let me say, verses 6 and 7 will provide some extra reassurance in a moment. But let's just pause for a moment. For those of us who do tend to be anxious, to tend to be worriers, I think this is so helpful. You may have had people sometimes say to you, just stop worrying. Stop being anxious. Stop being risk-averse. Just stop it. You may have told yourself that. It's actually pretty hard to do just to turn it off. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, worry about the right stuff. It's not necessarily wrong to be risk-averse. It's really wrong to miscalculate the risk that matters. It's a scary thought being on the wrong side of angry, armed opponents. It should be a scarier thought of being the wrong side of the living God. Jesus says, get our perspective right, fear him. If the hypocrisy warning said, care more about pleasing God than pleasing people, or this warning says, care more about God's opinion than theirs. Now let me say, if you're sitting here thinking, just looking in on Christian things, thinking all this talk of life after death and eternal judgment, it just sounds foolish. If you'd rather just focus on this life, take your chances here, Or please come back next week, because we'll meet someone like that. Jesus will address exactly that. But for Christians, I think this encouragement to look to eternity is so helpful. Because actually, when it comes to eternity, it's not uncertain for us. There is no uncertainty, because as we're going to celebrate later, around the Lord's table, Jesus provides full forgiveness in his death. There is total assurance that God is for us. And so, to be honest, if it's a straight-out choice between saving my neck socially, here and now, but denying Jesus, or sticking with Jesus and knowing that I'm safe, secure for eternity, that the eternal God is for me, that I can stand before my maker, it should be a no-brainer, even for the most naturally scared amongst us. Especially when, verse 6, Jesus does reassure us immediately about God's character. He's not some distant, uncaring ogre. He deeply knows us and cares about us and values us. So he's not a kind of despotic judge that we need to impress with our performance. No, he's a loving father. He's for us. His eye is on us, even when we suffer. Verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you're of more value than many sparrows. It's an amazing thought This: The point of the sparrows is that they're not worth much. They're worth the price of a Morningside coffee or a Greg's bake. Maybe two Greg's bakes. God knows each and every sparrow, though. Not one falls to the ground. Not one will die without him being aware. And so how much more value are his children? Let me say, I know my son Josh quite well. I know his birthmarks, his chubby cheeks, the way he runs. I I know the way his nails grow, what the tendencies are. I know the tuft of his hair on the back that pops up when you take a hat off. I can tell you from the other side of the playground whether he's really hurt himself or just in shock and I have absolutely no idea how many hairs he has. This is a level of knowledge, a level of care, a level of value that goes way beyond human parenthood. As the sermon will end next week in verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom, to look after you. He values us. Of course, if he's tracking two penny birds, then he knows when his children are being unfairly treated. Which brings us finally to temptation three. Don't be anxious about publicly speaking of Jesus. Don't be anxious about publicly speaking of Jesus. This is verse eight to 12. Um, Again, we're in the same territory. We're dealing with whether we care more about what people think here and now or more about what God thinks for all eternity. But these are the most kind of straightforward verses, the, the, the most straightforward application and command this morning. Verse eight. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now I realize even as we hear this, there may be some in the room who are worrying. Worrying about, oh, have I, have I done that? Have I, have I denied Jesus? Have I failed to, to acknowledge him well enough, often enough? Um, if you can just hold fire on the guilt. We are going to get there in verse 10. Just hold fire. Jesus has help for that. But first off, I'd love us just to notice what an amazing thing God is actually saying in verse 8. The positive promise is absolutely extraordinary. It's wonderful. Just look at it. Jesus' straightforward promise is that for each and every person who's willing to say, to, to stand up and say in public, it is public, notice acknowledge me before men, we're talking public, to say in public, I'm with Jesus. To confess that to other people, that I believe him and I follow him, well, then Jesus will say, in front of the whole heavenly courtroom, the assembled angels of God, Jesus will say, That one's with me. They're with me. Notice the title Jesus is using here to refer to himself Son of Man. That's from Daniel. We're doing Daniel in the evenings. Please listen tonight. You'll hear a bit about that and on into the rest of the series. The Son of Man figure in Daniel is the king and judge of everything. He's the one person who's given all authority to judge the living and the dead, the only one whose opinion matters in the end. And the Son of Man says, I'm not ashamed to have that person with me. She's with me. He's with me. Because they're not ashamed to say that they are with me. It's an absolutely wonderful promise. So helpful, I think, to keep this in mind. One of the hardest things, one of the challenges, I think, of being public as a Christian in the workplace or in school or uni or the school gate or the neighbourhood, one of the challenges is just how lonely it can feel. You're the only Christian teacher in the school. You're the only um, Christian family on the street. Easy to feel like the odd one out, like you're being left on your own. Or the Son of Man says, you're with me. I'm with them. He says that to the glorious angelic beings. This one's with me. I know it's easier said than done. Actually, I've come to learn that different stages of life re- require a fresh choice of whether we're going to do this. So a new job, do we say early on, we're Christians With a new team, when we're asked how our weekend was, does our answer always sidestep around church (laughs) or drive right through it and mention something? When we're getting to know other parents, do we share the Christian thinking behind some of our life choices? In retirement, will we still seek friendships outside of church and speak about Jesus in them? Those who are students, I've mentioned before my first night at uni... Uh, I was chatting in someone's room with a few others. A flyer came under the door for a Christian union event and the guy whose room it was picked it up and said, ugh, Christians. He was intimidating. He could speak three languages. He'd done a gap year. He could do martial arts. He was intimidating. And that was the moment. That was the Luke 12 verse 8 moment. Am I verse 8 or am I verse 9? But it's not the only moment been plenty since and there will be plenty more what if looking backwards we are uncomfortable because we realize we haven't always done this i suspect more than half the room is feeling like that i know i feel like that i think there have been times when i've not been as clear as i could have been i've not stood with jesus when there was an opportunity some of us like the apostle peter have bottled it when we were pressed on what we believe Well, verse 10, just look at Jesus' reassurance. Verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Do you hear that promise to Jesus' disciples? Even if we've blown it in the past, even if we've not always said, I'm with Jesus, even if we've spoken a word against Jesus, we can pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, and there is forgiveness. What then about the second half of the verse? The one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Sometimes people really tie themselves in knots with this verse. They they worry they've committed the unforgivable sin. But what blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is talking about is a wholesale rejection of the work and power of the Spirit that Jesus is offering. We actually met some people doing this at the start of chapter 11 a couple of weeks ago. They were claiming that Jesus' power came from evil sources. From Satan rather than the Holy Spirit. That is what blaspheming the Holy Spirit looks like. Calling Jesus evil, rejecting his work, refusing his power. And actually, both in Luke so far and in the Old Testament prophets, a central part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to provide cleansing from sin. Forgiveness, new hearts, a a washed heart, cleansing from the inside out. In Luke 3, John the Baptist said, well, I can only wash you with water, his baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But he was very clear that Jesus was coming with the Holy Spirit to wash us from the inside out. And so to reject the Spirit, to blaspheme the Spirit and say, well, I'm not having anything to do with what Jesus is offering there, is to cut yourself off from the one source of forgiveness and cleansing in this world. All of which to say, for those of us who are trusting Jesus' death, for those of us who gather around the table and pray, Father, forgive us our sins, who lean on the Holy Spirit to wash us and change us daily, well, verse 10 shouldn't be a threat, but an encouragement. If you've stuffed up, you will be forgiven. Not spoken for Jesus, spoken words against Jesus, gone along with the jokes, you will be forgiven. Finally, though, verses 11 and 12. That, that's looking in the rearview mirror, verse 10. What if we've failed before? But verses 11 and 12 look forwards. See, for many of us, the idea of actually speaking up when under pressure is terrifying because we feel ill-equipped. You might be sitting here thinking, well, it's all very well, the principle, yes, speak up for Jesus, but what am I going to say? I'm not a preacher. I'm not trained. I just wouldn't know what to say. Well, verse 11. And they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. Do not be anxious about what you would say, uh, about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That kind of persecution is exactly what happened to these first disciples and to the early church, first by leaders in Jerusalem, then in time by the Roman Empire. But Jesus' promise is that God stands with His children when they stand up with Jesus. The Spirit equips us to speak. We may not be dragged into court regularly at the moment, although some Christians and churches have been in the UK. But this promise stands for us. Do you remember the prayer Jesus taught us to pray? In chapter 11, it starts with, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It ends with, lead us not into temptation. And presumably that includes the temptation to not hallow God's name in certain contexts. To not seek his kingdom. To not say that we're with his kingdom. Well, we can pray, forgive us our sins and help us. Lead us not into temptation. Protect us, equip us. And in chapter 11, God's promise was that our Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And as we close, that's that's my final encouragement. As fearful believers, we do need to realise we're not alone. Something that runs all the way through the, the passage. It can feel lonely, isolated, speaking out as a Christian in Scotland, but, but today we've seen that God the Father has his eyes on us. He's counted our follicles, he knows us. God the Son stands with us. He'll say that to the angels. And God the Spirit empowers us, equips us to know what to say in the moment. It's an absolutely wonderful picture. And actually, Christian hearts leap for joy when we have a go at speaking up for Jesus. I said how much um, we were scared with the pumpkins and the tracks. But actually, there was also a joy, a real joy, even if some people didn't like it. At least we said something about Jesus, the light of the world. And if you're thinking, well, that's all very well, but I might lose my job. Or it might hit my prospects. This is unrealistic. Someone has to pay the bills. Or come back next week when Jesus tackles our anxiety about wealth. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray so much that you would help us to fear you more than we fear people and to want to please you more than when we want to please people. We can't do that ourselves. So We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to shape our hearts, to love you, and to want to share your glorious good news. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.